Good morning, everybody. The Bible reading today is in 1 Peter, beginning at chapter 1, verse 13, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 3. I'll give you a moment to get your Bibles ready at home. One Peter one, beginning at verse thirteen. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy. In all that you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, what we're going to do is spend the first half of our time thinking carefully about that Bible passage that Ness just read to us, and then the second half thinking about why we should be backpackers for Jesus. And it's my hope and prayer that this will elevate your thinking, lift your soul far beyond the oppressive constraints of this COVID lockdown. The logic of our passage is this live your life on earth as one passing through with reverent fear because of three reasons. Number one, verse 17, because the God you call upon is your heavenly Father, who is the impartial judge of each person's life. Secondly, verses 18 and 19, because you've been redeemed by the death of Jesus from your former way of life. And thirdly, verses 20 to 21, because your faith and hope are the result of God's eternal plan to raise Jesus from the grave and glorify him. So, 
Verse 17, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear because God is judge, you are redeemed, and your faith springs from the resurrection of Jesus. We're strangers, foreigners. We're just passing through. Our 80-odd years are but a blip against the backdrop of eternity. So I want us to think about what it means to live as backpackers for Jesus. First, we have to deal with the elephant in the passage. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Reverent fear, it's, it's not a paralyzing terror, but a concern that we might face God's discipline and fatherly displeasure. It's a reverence and awe that should characterize the lives of believers during their time as strangers here on earth. C.S. Lewis captured this so well in the Narnia Chronicles with the character of Aslan the Lion. In one scene, Mr. Tumnus and Lucy are watching Aslan, the Christ figure, walking away from them on a beach. Mr. Tumnus says, you know, he's not a tame lion, to which Lucy responds, but he is good. Don't worry. We'll see him again. When? In time. One day he'll be here, and the next he won't. But you mustn't press him. After all, he's not a tame lion. No. But he is good. God is good but he is not tame. So we live our lives before him in reverent fear. I actually have to go back to the beginning of our passage, verse 13, to find the first command of 1 Peter. Verse 13 literally reads, Therefore, because of the resurrection of Jesus, preparing your minds for action, being completely self-controlled, and here comes the first command of the letter, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the Christian life is to be one of hope, one of confident expectation in the goodness and grace of God. And then down in verse 21, because of the resurrection of Jesus, our faith and hope are to be in God. So verses 13 to 21 form one big hope sandwich. And in verse 17, the meat in this hope sandwich is fear. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. We're called to live our lives in fear. Peter didn't use the word reverent when he wrote. Uh, that's just what our translator has put in to help each of us catch the force of what Peter wrote. The force of what Peter means by fearing God is found at the beginning of verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's, each person's work impartially. Friends, there is one standard for living, and that is God's standard. There won't be different rules for different people. He is impartial, he is father, and he is good. And he is the father who judges every single person without exception and without favor. 
There is only one standard of judgment, and that is your work, your life, your deeds. And there's only one thing that saves us from that standard of divine judgment, grace. So set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you in Jesus. But at the same time, live in fear. How can this be? How can we live a hope-filled life on the one hand when we're also living in fear? If we are saved from our sins by grace, and this is the the clear teaching of the Bible, grace, the undeserved favour of God, verse 13, and if as a result we've been given a new birth into a living hope, into an imperishable inheritance, which is what we saw last week when we looked at the first part of chapter 1, and if there is now no condemnation from God for us who are trusting in Christ and the grace of God that he mediates to us, then how can we also be called to live in fear? You know, we we Aussies are supposed to be laid back, laconic and relaxed. But something's happened. We are now stressed and anxious and competitive and we worry a lot. Despite our material gains, we have never been more anxious I won't bore you with the stats, especially those around our young people, but anxiety is bordering on epidemic levels. Make today a time toward you recalibrating your fears. The fear that you are to live in as a Christian, as one who trusts in the Lord Jesus, is the fear that you might cease to hope in God. That you might take the hope sandwich of our passage and throw it away and instead be satisfied with junk food. So make every effort to stick with Jesus, to remain in him with your faith and hope in him. So we listen to Jesus himself and make every effort to enter through the narrow door, Luke chapter 13. We join with the writer to the Hebrews and we make every effort to enter the rest that Jesus offers, Hebrews chapter 4. We make every effort to be holy, Hebrews chapter 12. And we listen to Peter, who concludes his second letter by urging us who are looking forward to Jesus' return to, quote, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. We are to make every effort to stick with Jesus and so have our hope in the grace that he brings us. If the consequences of abandoning this grace and having your life judged on the basis of your deeds by God, the great impartial judge of all, if the consequences were not so utterly grave, Peter wouldn't tell us to live our lives in fear. But he does. Live in fear that you might cease to hope in God. Live in fear. Now, if you are without hope, then fear leads to terror. For example, if you're in a car accident, and you are trapped, and there is no hope of your rescue, then you know that you will die either from blood loss, in an inferno, or by starvation. You have no hope of survival, and so your fear gives way to terror. But if you can hear the sirens, if you are aware of people working to free you, then you have the hope of rescue. You are rightly fearful of the predicament you're in, But because you know you are being rescued, you make every effort to listen to and follow the instructions of your rescuer. You are fearful, 
but not terrified because you are hopeful. And as a result, you are obedient to the one who has and is rescuing you. So too, we should live our lives in reverent fear because of the hope we have in God and in his grace. The second reason we get in our passage to live our lives in reverent fear is because of the ransom paid by Jesus. Because, verse 18, you, Christian, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. Now, this is brilliant, the point that Peter is making here. In Greco-Roman times, a slave could be redeemed, set free by the payment of a timer, a price. And the way it would work is that the timer would be paid into the treasury of the temple of some god or goddess. Then the treasury, minus a very reasonable commission on their part, would then pay the timer to the owner of the slave and the slave would go free. As far as the slave was concerned, it was the god or goddess who had secured their freedom and they would then live their lives beholden to that deity. Christian, you weren't redeemed from your sins with perishable things such as silver and gold, the very things that would constitute a timer, but, verse 19, with the timeros, blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Timaos is the word for precious that's there in verse 19. What Peter did was take the Greco-Roman understanding of freedom from slavery and the Jewish knowledge of how the shedding of a lamb's blood at Passover secured the freedom of the Israelites from slavery and bring them together to describe what Jesus did for us. With a nod to the Romans, and in fulfilment of what God did with the Israelites, Jesus has redeemed you from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. That's Peter's way of saying that without God, life quite simply lacks ultimate and objective meaning. Our rejection of God, our, our sin, has cut us off from God, and without him, life is fundamentally in vain. Silver and gold cannot fix the problem of our sin. And that's something you and I need to hear here in Sydney. We are so used to contracting out the solution to our problems, throwing silver and gold at life's problems. Something's wrong around the house? Call a tradie and pay him. Garden needs some work? Pay a gardener. Not getting your own way? Call a lawyer. We have a problem, we put down some silver and gold and the problem goes away. Silver and gold can fix a lot of problems. My lawnmower wouldn't start the other month. A bit of silver and gold and it's good as new. But silver and gold cannot fix broken relationships. Not between individuals and not between individuals and God. That is why the precious blood of Christ is necessary and sufficient for your redemption. So we should be very clear that we don't move on from Christ. Like the learner driver who masters the complexity of a reverse park, then forgets to keep left as they drive off. Or the politician who reaches high office, but forgets that he offered himself for election so that he could serve his constituents and not fleece them. Do not forget the precious blood of Christ. Live in fear that you might so that you will be careful to stick with him.
We are to live our lives as strangers, as foreigners here in reverent fear. Because God our Father is the impartial judge of all and he's saved us by grace, verse 17. Because you've been redeemed by the death of Jesus from your former way of life, which was fundamentally empty, verses 18 and 19. And thirdly, because your faith and hope are the result of God's eternal plan to raise Jesus from the dead and give him glory. How could you not want to be on his side? Peter says we are to live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Live as people who don't belong. As people who are just passing through. Live as backpackers for Jesus here on earth. What does it look like to live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear? I reckon it means you have the mindset of a backpacker in all your decisions. I've got six ways that I think the mindset of a backpacker is helpful and one way that it's not. Firstly, backpackers don't put down deep roots because you're looking forward to another destination and ultimately you know that you're going home. You know that this period of life will pass and one day you will settle down. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to another destination. Ultimately, we know we are going home and we know that this time will pass. So if life is good, you can know it is only going to get better. And if life is hard, you can know that it is going to pass. And so you are liberated to both live in the moment and look forward to one day going home. Well, secondly, backpackers, they don't fuss about their accommodation. You can live with a bit of discomfort. You don't need to keep up with the Joneses in their home renos or their holiday home or their upgraded car. You can gladly give of your income to gospel causes like our weekly church offertory. Now, even after getting a tax deduction for some of those gospel causes, that's money that you can't spend on yourself, so your life will be less comfortable. Do you know what? You're okay with that. Because you know that life without God is empty and lived in vain, and you don't want that for anyone, so you're investing in kingdom work. And like a backpacker, well, you can live with a bit of discomfort. Backpackers have low expectations. Low expectations about things like hot showers, comfortable beds, and people trying to take advantage of them, and everything being easy. Exciting? Yes. Easy? No. Backpackers have low expectations. Over in chapter 4, Peter is going to point out that the gospel will see Christians living out of step with those around them, whose response will be to heap abuse on you, to insult you because of the name of Christ. In the same way, backpackers have low expectations of everything in their travels being easy. So too, as Christians, we should have low expectations of everything being easy when we stand up for Jesus. Well, fourthly, everything you have as a backpacker fits into, well, a a backpack, hence the term backpacker. You travel light, you sit loose from fancy clothes and jewellery and cars and other symbols of status. Because you're not at home, you're travelling light, your plans are flexible, 
Everything you've got with you has a specific purpose to advance your cause as a backpacker. The shoes, the microfiber towel, those ridiculous pants that zip off and turn into shorts, the things you have with you mark you out as a backpacker. So too the Christian. Does everything you've got have a specific purpose to advance your cause? Or more specifically, the cause of Christ? You've got a home. Some of you have very nice homes. Some of you have holiday homes and boats as well. Are you using those things to advance the cause of Christ? Enjoy them by all means, but use them to advance the cause of Christ as well. If you're struggling to, to think what that might mean, then um, I know that Mal and I, we'd love to have a chat with you and give you a few suggestions. But remember the rest of verse 17. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Live in fear that you might cease to hope in God. What might you put your hope in instead? Most likely, verse 18, perishable things such as silver and gold. There was a, a tragic story a couple of years ago about a family in Bondi that Waverley Council forcibly cleaned up all the rubbish they'd been hoarding in and outside their home for years. Very sad, the outworkings of mental illness. And yet you and me, we're nothing like that on the outside. Live in fear. Be awake to the threat that we might allow our hearts to be cluttered with the love of silver and gold and the things they can get us. We don't hoard or clutter. We don't need to buy everything that catches our eye on Amazon, the iconic, or eBay, or in the Aldi junk and crap, sorry, the, the, the middle special buyer's eye at Aldi. We are backpackers. We travel light. Fifthly, your relationships are not of your choosing, but with those you find yourself with. And when you find someone going to the same place as you, well, you travel on with them. You and I, we can't choose the people who join us at our church, but when they come into our fellowship, we welcome them and we travel with them. We share a common saviour. We share a common hope. We share a common destination. And so we travel together. You may feel where you are in lockdown, that you are alone in the trenches, but you are not. Finally, as backpackers, we have flexible plans. Uh, we're open to new things. You know, backpackers start with a broad plan, head to Queensland, see the reef, maybe duck across to the Gulf from there, hitch down to Alice or press on to Broome. But those plans could change and it's no big deal if they do. God could have you change your career or maybe take a pay cut to work just four days a week and devote the fifth day to gospel work. You should be open to that. As a minister of the gospel, you need to be open to change. The messenger must be open to changing the way they deliver their message in response to changing circumstances. But the messenger must never change the message. Like Paul, we should look to become all things to all people that we might win some for Christ. Well, there are six ways that uh, being a backpacker helps us understand what it means to live as a stranger here on earth as a Christian. 
But there is one difference between backpackers and Christians. The backpacker code says, what happens overseas stays overseas. That is a license to treat people cheaply and pretend that it doesn't matter, to pretend there are no consequences to your actions. But verse 17, you call on a father who judges each one's work impartially. We are accountable to God. Our morals are high. We are to be, verse 16, holy in all that we do. Whether at home or away from home, we are to reflect the character of our generous, gracious, holy God in all that we do. And whether we like it or not, whether we always realize it or not, people are watching. Our families, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, they're all watching. And I don't need to tell you how hypocrisy destroys the witness of Christians, especially hypocrisy that comes in the form of moral failure. Now, if, if we unpack the anatomy of a moral failure, it never starts with the end game, with the addiction, the affair, the theft, the whatever. It started when we told ourselves that our Father doesn't judge each person's work impartially. When we told ourselves, this isn't so bad. I can never be holy enough, so I'll let this one thing slide. No, the standards you walk past are the standards you set. We are to be holy in all that we do. And so in the conduct of our lives, we are different. We are distinct from those whose home is in the here and now. And our passage concludes with a reminder that God and his word, by contrast, stand forever. Whereas we're like a springtime flower that withers and falls to the ground. So, chapter 2, verse 1, we choose to be done with all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander. Because we are strangers here. We're backpackers. And one day, we're going home to be with our Father. Amen. Well, thanks, Craig. That was uh, really helpful. And uh, we've got our Q&A phone here. Um, so if you are watching live, you can be sending in questions now. In fact, some people uh, are doing that right now. Uh, Craig, first question that's come in here is uh, we, we talk about God being a God of love, um, but you've told us to fear God uh, in this way. How do those things sort of exist together? Yeah, the, the word fear, Fear that our English translations give us in, in the Bible really means awe. Live in awe of God, who is perfectly loving, perfectly just. Live in awe that he would choose to love you, that he would choose to send his only son to die on a cross in your place and mine for our sins. Live in awe that, that we look at God and go, wow, I would give anything to stay in relationship with you and not treat him cheaply like some disposable thing we get in that middle aisle of Aldi. Uh, another question that's come in. Most of us aren't uncomfortable facing cold showers or temporary accommodation. Are you suggesting we sell up, live modestly and give our dollars to the gospel ministry? Perhaps. 
I'm not suggesting what any one person should do, but what we need to do is, like a backpacker, we know this is just temporary. Where are you storing up your treasure? What, where are you getting your value from and your identity and worth? Is it in your net asset position? If so, that might be a sign that you might want to consider sitting a little loose from that. Uh, for some of you, it, it may well be that God is putting it on your heart to sell up out of prime real estate on the North Shore and uh, go to a community that is uh, less rich with uh, Christians who can be making the great news of Jesus known. Uh, God may be putting that on your heart, uh, or he may not. My encouragement is uh, talk to Mal on the ministry team and uh, work through with uh, wise Christian leaders how can we live for Jesus and make every day count? Uh, I like what you said uh, in your talk, though. How can I use the things I have for the purpose of yeah. ministry, for the purpose of seeing God? Mm. Um, so it might mean that you can use your house to uh, entertain people, to, to have people over and to do gospel ministry or uh, use your boat in a similar sort of way. You can use your possessions for God's glory in that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Uh, another question that's come through is, I keep choosing to be holy but I continually fail. How can I be confident in the Lord when I will be judged for my actions, but I am helplessly infected with chronic sin? Great question. Great question. Uh, in our passage, uh, verse 13, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. Brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed his coming. We're not saved by what we do. We know that his precious blood, his infinitely precious blood, is strong enough to cover over, to pay for an infinite number of sins, even your sins. And so we keep coming back to the cross of Christ and recognizing that he is Lord and Savior and we need his forgiveness and we dust ourselves off and we go again. And so the, the, the very fact that, that uh, the questioner is so aware of their, their struggle against sin is proof, I reckon, that they are in fact alive to Christ. Because you know what? Dead people don't struggle. They just get washed downstream. The fact that you are struggling with sin and taking the, the commands of Scripture and the promises of Scripture seriously tells me that you are very much alive uh, with Christ. It is, the grace of God is so wonderful in that way, isn't it? You know, what can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Uh, it's good to remember that. Well, friends, with this in mind, thanks very much, Craig, for coming uh, and speaking to us. I'm going to hand over to Ness Hughes, and she's going to lead us in a time of prayer.